0: this episode is brought to you by weatherguard lightning tech at weatherguard we make wind turbine lightning protection easy if you're a wind farm operator stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime get your uptime back with our strike tape lightning protection system learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape
1: welcome back I'm Alan Hall,
0: I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. On today's show, we've got two amazing guests, engineers Alex Byrne and Matt Malkin from DNVGL. Alex and Matt are both experts on lightning's effect on wind turbines. And these two are gracious enough to join us to share their expertise. We reached out to them actually for conversation after reading their uh, really good article titled lightning, wind turbines and force majeure, a risky mix. So first let me tell you a little bit more about our guests. Alex Byrne brings over 15 years of experience in the wind industry. Her areas of expertise include understanding and assessing lightning protection systems using statistical methods, evaluating blade failures, including performing inspections and identifying root causes, developing operating wind farm data analytic models, and evaluating site-specific turbine loading for broad applications such as failure analysis, site suitability, repowering, and life extension. Ms. Byrne has also performed turbine certification for DNVGL in Denmark and holds a master's degree in mechanical engineering. And our second guest, Matt Malkin, has 20 years of engineering experience and 11 years of experience in wind energy with a focus on blade technology. He has led multiple blade failure investigations and field assessments of blade damage. Matt has analyzed SCADA and meteorological data in support of blade failure investigations and is familiar with blade construction, failure mechanisms, and failure modes. He has conducted multiple blade and turbine manufacturing and quality surveys in North America, Europe, and Asia. Mr. Malkin has participated in the examination and evaluation of composite turbine blade structural design, analysis methods, and manufacturing methods for technical due diligence. So, Alan, what were some of your key takeaways from this uh, really in-depth conversation with engineers Alex Byrne and Matt Malkin? First, that
1: Matt and Alex are really knowledgeable about the lightning and wind turbine interaction space. Uh, there's very few people who have as much experience in such a broad area of wind turbine lightning protection. So, it's kind of special to talk to them because they have such a huge knowledge base and have worked with so many customers around the world on helping uh, operators with their wind turbines and lightning protection systems and making sure that they're operating at at peak efficiency. So that was fascinating. I think Alex describing her way of providing a field assessment where she has, over time, been able to predict what the lightning environment will be for new wind turbine sites, or even for existing wind turbine sites, what to expect in terms of lightning protection. And then Matt's just very knowledgeable in in the blade structure and how that lightning protection system interacts with the blade structure and how uh, defects in the blade structure or damage to the blade structure can affect later on in in the blade's lifetime. So there's just, just a huge amount of knowledge between those two.
0: And like you said, there's just so much that I think is still unknown, but yet they've seen a tremendous amount in in each of their decades plus of experience each in the industry. And I think a lot of us take it for granted just how complex lighting is. Like you said, every site's different, every turbine's different, the environment's different, and they're just trying to make good forecasting models to say, hey, this is what you as a wind farm owner should expect. So they can make a profitable business. So yeah, it is pretty interesting. So without further ado, let's jump right into our, our conversation with Alex Byrne and Matt Malkin. All right. So Alex, DNVGL operates like, in two separate branches, right? There's so there's a certification side, an advisory side, and they both stay rel- relatively independent of each other. So can you tell us a little bit about DNVGL, as far as your experience, and I know you're more on the advisory side.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so we have a certification branch that certifies wind turbines and components and projects. And then I'm on the advisory side, and we help owners and operators. We actually help a lot of stakeholders in the wind industry with various problems that they bring to us. So um, my experience is pretty broad all the way from loads assessment, site suitability, looking at repowering, life extension. But I also have a lot of experience looking at lightning and lightning interaction with wind turbines.
3: Yeah, I, just, I would like to just underline what Alex said about um, the advisory and certification roles of the broader brand of DNV GL. We treat the certification side of DNV GL as we would treat any other certification agent, we being advisory. So we are consultants and we represent, you know, typically owners and operators of wind projects as different stakeholders, as Alex put it. Yeah. Myself, I, I am a blade specialist. have been in wind for a little over 10 years now and have as a result of that been exposed to lightning in various forms and the damage that it does to blades. So yeah, looking forward to uh, discussing with you.
0: And so Alex, you're a little more on the data side, is that right? Or at least you're pretty widespread, I think by your own admission.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I've got more experience looking at data, doing data analytics. I worked for a few years for a data analytics company. It's producing software in, for operating wind farms that applied machine learning to operating wind data. And yeah, when we get to looking at lightning, I'm usually looking at lightning data itself and doing analyses on performance of lightning protection systems.
0: Got it. So both of you spend a lot of time with wind farm owners and operators. And I think one of your big jobs is making forecasts. So if I was in the market to buy a bunch of wind turbines and start a farm, obviously I'd want to have as as accurate a financial forecast as I could. And obviously that's not just the upfront cost, but the operations, the maintenance and, and the damage that we might be incurring. Matt, I'll throw this to you first, but is, is this something that you typically help wind operators with? Like you can establish a baseline of lightning damage yeah it's a good question
3: and you're right that having a good understanding of how much things are going to cost is essential to financing a project and getting it going and developing a project alex and I we provide inputs to uh, the team within dnvgl that supports the developers and those who are building projects we do provide support to them i think a lot of our a lot of our work that we do is for operating projects so projects that have been built and that are that have some operational experience. I'm talking now specifically related to lightning. So we may get uh, operators that come to us and say, "Hey, look, we've got got some lightning damage here. Is this a reasonable amount of lightning damage or not? And what can we expect in the future? That type of thing. There's there's a lot there to inform owners and operators as well as people who are looking to, to develop projects
2: when when a new project is getting built we can also do an assessment of the lightning exposure that that project's going to experience so that can help inform budgeting we can forecast what we expect the lightning damage to look like at the site now it might be different because like different lightning protection systems work differently but the risk assessment is something that can be valuable because not all sites are the same. They won't all experience the same amount of lightning damage.
1: Part of that effort, Alex, is that there's just, just take there's virgin ground out there and we're going to put some wind turbines on this site. Are you pulling lightning data off of basala or the National Lightning Detection Network? And then once you put up these big, tall, 500-foot, turbines out there. Do you predict that that'll change the lightning environment or is there data that you're trying to, from previous history that you know that this is what the impact is going to be when you put these big towers out in the middle of this field?
2: Great question. Yeah. So when there's, you maybe you have flat farmland and yeah, we'll look at the lightning data, the historical lightning data from that area. And it's, it's collected by the National Lightning Detection Network, which is run by Vaisala, as you mentioned. So we get that data from Vaisala and assess how much, what the severity is for that site. But then, as you say, you put turbines in their gigantic structures, and they are going to impact the lightning environment. We do have experience looking at that. So looking at lightning data before and after Wind Farm is built, and we have some sense for how, it, how the presence of turbines impacts lightning. But we definitely want to impart on your listeners that lightning is a very random process. There's a lot of unknowns about it. There's a lot of unknowns about the interaction between lightning and wind turbines. So none of this is is hard facts, hard science. There's a lot that we will be able to estimate and give indications of. But a lot of it, we just have to wait and see what happens.
0: Gotcha. And, wow, okay. and is this where your field performance assessment comes in? Because it sounds like when there's a new project and you guys are consulting for them, that you will do like an initial assessment? Is that right?
2: Yeah. So we can assess the field performance at any point. So we use the same approach, whether the turbines are in the ground or not, whether they've been operating for a year or 10 years. But the longer the operating history, the more certainty that we have on the outcome of the results. So if we're doing an assessment before any turbines have gone in the ground, we're just forecasting and trying to give an indication of what we expect to see as far as lightning damage goes. Once the turbines are in the ground and they've been operating for some time, then we can look at the actual light environment, how much lightning the turbines have experienced over the number of years that they've been operating, and then from that, estimate how much damage you would expect given fully functional lightning protection system. And if the lightning protection system wasn't doing a great job, then you'd see more damage than that calculation would show. And that can give you a direction to go for figuring out why you're seeing that damage.
1: So is there a generic rule of thumb based on the country or location? Is, is it regionalized in terms of the quantity of lightning strike or even the amplitude or action integrals or all of those sort of lightning parameters? how do you break that down? Because it seems like every part of the country is just a little bit different. And Iowa is different than Texas and Texas is different from California and California is different than Italy. How do you do all that? How do you aggregate that data?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. And there's localized effects too. So you might know what the lightning environment is in Texas, but then once you put your wind farm in place in Lubbock, then, you know, you might see very different lightning exactly in that that specific location. So when we do our assessment, we collect data from that exact location where the turbines are, and no more, no less. So I think that's a really important aspect of it. That said, we're not lightning scientists, <laughs> we're engineers. And so what what we know is mostly from the research that the, the lightning PhDs out there have done and what we've observed. But it does seem like there's some standard characteristics of lightning and some parts of the world that will vary, but in general, you can expect to see a certain distribution of characteristics of lightning across different sites. The exception, well, yeah, the exception to that is that the, the frequency of the lightning varies a lot by location and you can look at maps of frequency and see how that varies across the world.
3: I had a thought there, Alex, as you were talking. It is true, as you said, that lightning flash density varies geographically. One thing that we've seen recently, which is very interesting, is in a couple of very low flash density geographic areas, we've seen some very significant strikes to wind turbines. And very interesting, and this has been several points around the globe where we might normally have one flash per square kilometer per year, something like that, very low flash densities, yet we're seeing some significant lightning events. And so it is, and and I say individual events, maybe the overall flash density is not changing, but we are seeing instances where turbines get struck and damaged. And so what's going on there? To me, that's interesting uh, from a number of angles, but one is related to tall structures like wind turbines and the nature of lightning. And, you know, we understand that very tall structures are struck almost exclusively by upward lightning, whereas shorter structures below, say, 60 meters or so are struck almost exclusively by downward lightning. And the lightning directionality matters because the characteristics of that lightning are different, and the resulting damage modes to to the object that they hit are also different. And so, uh, in the case of upward lightning and wind turbines, there can be a lot of charge transferred in those upward lightning events, and and that can have some specific damage modes. There's a lot of heating involved in that type of event. In addition to that, upward lightning can be very challenging for lightning location systems to see. In cases where there's a continuing current phase only of the lightning event, there's just basically DC content in there. There's not a lot of the the high frequency content that the sensors, the ground-based sensors anyways are looking for in lightning events. That makes our job interesting, so you may have a damaging lightning event that uh, there's no record of it based from the ground-based sensors. That's a particularly interesting topic and and I think one that we're going to start to see more of as tip heights. so that's the hub height of the turbine plus the the length of the blade goes go up, which seems to be the trend and it doesn't seem to be stopping.
1: Yeah, it, there's very little data, Matt. I think you're right about that, that there's very little data about height versus lightning strikes. When the Empire State Building was built back in the, what, the 20s, there was GE had performed a lot of research on the top of, of the Empire State Building and were measuring lightning strike data. And they realized a lot of the lightning strikes upward. And then but in terms of like power generation equipment, we've never been to those heights before and didn't rely on it if the Empire State building got struck, nobody really cared. But if our wind turbine goes down, we start to really care about it. And I I think you're right about that. There is some effect about as we get bigger and the diameters get bigger, where we're changing the way we're changing the environment. It's a weird way to think about it, but we're actually changing the way electricity works in the cloud because we're creating these really tar conductive things. And I'm not sure if it's all height related or combination of height. Plus some environmental changes that are happening on top of it. Or in some cases, it seems like the number of turbines seems to affect the weather pattern a little bit, any sense of, as we go bigger, what we're going to see, are we going to see more of this sort of continuing current positive lightning strikes, upward triggered strikes as we get bigger, which is where we're going right now with some of these GE blades and the Halley and some of these turbines are just getting enormous.
3: Yeah, that's right. The turbines are continuing to grow. It is my sense that we will begin to see a higher fraction of events that strike turbines as upward in the upper direction, just because of the height. As far as uh, sort of a couple of your other comments, the environment having some influence there that's possible. I don't know if the number of turbines is affecting that or not. I think that's a very challenging question to answer.
2: The other interesting question is whether or not the rotating nature of the turbine has any impact on it. We do have some curious behavior of lightning around wind turbines that doesn't seem to be mimicked with just tall towers. So there's some indication that it's the rotating nature of the turbine, though I don't think that is perfectly well understood yet. And there's some speculation, I guess, that shutting down a, a wind farm when a, a particular storm comes through might reduce the damage site on the turbine. Have
0: there been any studies done with, say, the redwood forest? If we're talking about really tall, non-rotating objects, like I wonder if there's been anything you know, done there where they'll say, hey, this is comparable in height to, to many of these wind turbines, but they don't seem to have the same lightning environment.
2: I don't know the answer to that question. I know that there's lightning measurement on various tall towers, like uh, communication towers. And then um, there's rocket-triggered lightning. They do a lot of those experiments mm-hmm. in Florida. But yeah, they're all a little different than wind turbines. And then the other thing to note is just that historically, we have not done a great job of measuring lightning on wind turbines. So as Matt mentioned, you know, we We typically rely on the National Lightning Detection Network to give us data about lightning, but that network will typically only give you the peak amplitude of the lightning flash or or stroke. And it it doesn't give any of the other characteristics of lightning. So there are multiple characteristics that, that represent the whole time wave form of the lightning event. And peak current is only one of them. So... So typically, that's all we have. And sometimes we don't even have that if the lightning location system doesn't capture a damaging strike. So to compare what we're seeing on wind turbines to what we're seeing on towers is a little difficult just because we don't know the distribution of the rise time, of the total duration, the total charge transfer specific energy. And we're also a little bit in the dark on what's happening with those upward events just because they're not captured
3: as much in the lightning location systems. Yeah, I, I think that there is ample room for the industry to measure lightning strikes to turbines. And, and it's, it's to me, this is a very exciting and interesting area where there could be so much more development. There's various sensors out there that could be mounted in the blades they could be mounted at the base of the tower that you know could potentially provide that full current time waveform for lightning strikes that hit the turbine and, and that is very useful information that that circles back around again that is that our
1: issue right now is that we have IEC specifications for qualifying wind turbine blades and testing wind turbine blades but then we have a separate issue which is one the the lightning varies across the world, and but also as we get taller, we're seeing effects that we wouldn't have otherwise recognized. I, and I know on the aircraft side, we have the same issue, where we're seeing different kinds of strikes as we start to instrument aircraft and wind turbine towers that we're starting to record from that data and starting to scratch our heads and say, "Wow, a lot of the data we took almost literally a hundred years ago." 80 years ago uh, in terms of towers isn't maybe as accurate as what we can measure now or now we're recording, we can record every strike. And I think you're right as an operator, just measuring a couple of turbines would be a huge impact into future development projects, because as your field performance assessments are putting together that history, having some of that real data can make the next generation wind turbines just a lot more uh, resilient to lightning strikes.
2: Yeah, I think you're making exactly the right points there, Alan, and our long-term objective should be as an industry to get um, more knowledge about how lightning is interacting with wind turbines so that we can get better at protecting these turbines, especially as yeah, as they're getting taller and we're expecting to see more and more lightning and possibly more severely. There's no way to get better at that without the data. So we, yeah, we absolutely have to start measuring data on wind turbines.
0: All right, so Matt, we've been talking a lot about the need for measuring all these strikes upward versus downward. So you said you've seen lots of the mechanical damage that's like uh, very much in in your wheelhouse. We've talked a lot about like the overall picture a little bit, but how bad is this issue of lightning damage right now? Where's it coming from? And is there anything that makes, we've talked a little bit about it, but anything that makes lightning's interactions with uh, wind turbines especially unique?
3: Definitely. Let's walk through it. When lightning attaches to a wind turbine, there's two essential functions that the lightning protection s- uh, system on the turbine provides. The first is to get the lightning to attach to what's called a receptor, which is an appropriate point for the lightning to attach to. And then once that's happened, the lightning needs to be safely conducted to ground. What we see in terms of damage is is first when lightning attaches somewhere else other than a receptor. And so you get the lightning puncturing through the fiberglass shell of the blade, and attaching to, for example, the down conductor, that the, the cable that's inside the blade directly, rather than attaching to the, to the receptor. Or you may see lightning attached to structure within, inside the blade. And that typically happens more frequently with carbon fiber structure, which is partially conductive. And that attachment, that can do damage to the carbon fiber itself. It can do damage to anything that the lightning passes through. There's also damage done during the conduction phase. And so that can be heating that results in the shells of the blade opening up. So the trailing edge of the blade can split at the tip. You can have arcing inside the blade between the down conductor and conductive components within the blade. You can have arcing if there's a broken cable, a down conductor cable or, or a gap. You can have arcing there as well. Which leads to again to potentially to damaging the typically fiberglass uh, laminates within the blade. Yes, yeah, so there's various damage modes that can occur. the The impact of this financially can be very significant for a project. So you can have a, a bad lightning season, and I'm aware of a large project. They budget a million dollars a year for lightning damage repairs. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So wow. It's just, this is a huge problem. As far as the uniqueness of lightning and damage to wind turbines. Wind turbines are unique structures. They are not steel telecommunications towers. They, the blades are typically manufactured of fiberglass, sometimes carbon fiber. And so they're, they're glass reinforced plastic and they are not as, they again, they're not as robust as a steel tower. And so they are sensitive to lightning damage.
0: So say they're in year one and they take 10 lightning strikes, just throwing out a random number they might not have to repair any of those 10 that year so what's the difference between short-term damage and i assume there's probably a lot of long-term damage that when you're talking about heat transfer within a blade some of these laminates probably take five ten years sometimes maybe to to start to really show the effects
3: great question there's so sometimes the lighting damage is obvious right you need to you it's very clear that you need to shut down the turbine until a repair can be done. At other times, the lightning damage on the surface anyways may look not that bad. So you may continue to run the turbine, keep an eye on it. And then other times, the damage may not look so bad on the surface, but underneath the structure that matters, there may be an initiation site and wind turbines are see a very high fatigue environment. And under that fatigue environment, that damage can progress and grow and become critical. So there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to assessment of damage uh, to blades in particular.
1: And Matt, that heat component, I think is, is where people get lost in this and the fatigue environment that you're in uh, because and Dan was saying, and what we have seen a lot of is like the split trailing edges, which may not happen immediately during the lightning event. And maybe another month or two after that, where just the fatigue starts to split the split the bait, and internally too, we've seen a lot of uh, damage internally that is completely heat related to Coulombs from the lightning, so the long duration currents heating up the down conductor, mostly the receptor blocks in there, where they just are just getting physically hot. And for most cases, it wouldn't matter, but the resin systems. Uh, the resin systems that most blades use are not really high temperature resin systems like we would typically use in other things. They tend to be low temperature, 250 cure kind of things. So the if you get anywhere near 150, 180 degrees locally or 200 degrees locally, you can really deform those structures locally. And, and the fatigue seems to take over time. It's just, it's, that's what we're seeing. Are you seeing that similar thing where it, it, the lightning strike itself happens, and but it's not an immediate squawk for that but it's sometime later that it's that sort of accumulated damage that happens
3: it's a good question and and i it really varies again i think you get both i think you get immediate effects Mm. and then you also do get some instances where the damage will progress over time and we've seen that and it is an ongoing challenge being able to properly identify and categorize damage that due to lightning on blades this mm. i think this will continue to be a, a, a challenge for the industry
0: so alex on the data analytics sides if you're trying to track hey this turbine took a couple strikes is there any way you can then say all right we're going to monitor it or, or will you see something happen with the data where you say okay it seems like something's internally wrong with this blade what what can data do to forecast or to to see into the future or just track some of these lightning strikes over time?
2: Yeah, it's a great question and we get asked that a lot. Yeah, it would be ideal if we had some data source where it could just ping you and say there's something going on with this blade. As the blades get larger, they do get better instrumentation. I guess more sensors on the blades that might be able to help with that. But the typical blades that we're working with today, they're not well instrumented and so... The information that we get from typical data streams just isn't sufficient to indicate anything about blade health. There's a lot of questions we get. If lightning damages the outside of the blade, wouldn't you see that show up in the performance of the turbine? Because now the airfoil is compromised, so it's not capturing the same power, and we should see a decrease in power, and you should be able to tell us, like, that blade should go, you should go inspect that blade. And in theory, that is true. Another thing that we do a poor job of measuring is wind at sites. And you really need to know what the wind speed is to know if the power is degraded or not. So I would say that to get there, to get to where, from where we are now to being able to identify damage through data, we either need to get a lot better wind measurements or we need to get better blade sensor measurements. And I think we're going in that direction more for the latter for the blade sensors. A common way to identify whether or not a blade or a turbine should be inspected after a lightning storm is just to look at the lightning data. I I think that's pretty typical. As we've already mentioned, lightning location systems don't capture all the lightning, so that's going to miss stuff with some regularity, but it's the best thing we have right now. So you look at the lightning data, you say there were some strikes close to this turbine and that turbine, that turbine. You go out and look at them and that's an acceptable approach for what we've got to work with
3: right now. And this is, I would like to put in another plug there for, for on turbine lightning measurement devices, just from an operational standpoint at a project, if you wanted to target your inspections after a storm, if you had data from the turbines, you would know which turbines had been struck mm-hmm. and you can then go out and look at those turbines in some detail.
0: So speaking of going out and inspecting the, the damage, I assume there's like a, a spectrum, right? So there's probably strikes that cause very little damage that maybe never needs to be repaired or maybe way down in the future. And there's some that probably needs to be taken care of right away. A, can you speak to the sort of the range on that spectrum? And B, how do you know the difference, especially if there's internal yeah. if there's internal damage?
3: That's a great question. And, and it's super relevant for so many projects, right? There is that spectrum of small instances of damage, all the way to very severe damage right typically damage is categorized so you might have category 1 damage which is quite light and you can continue to operate that and you then you re- that range goes all the way to say category 5 which would be catastrophic and it, somewhere in between is where it gets interesting what do i mm-hmm. do with my category 3 damage and there are different strategies for managing damage different operators have different ways to do it there is no universal sort of categorization system As an aside, I am working on a project with the Electric Power Research Institute, EPRI, to develop a recommended practice around this damage categorization for blades. Your question has a subtlety to it that I think is very challenging to answer, and that is, what about the effects on the internal structure of the blade? And this is something that is very difficult to know internal inspections of blades are a great thing and i think that they're not done frequently enough they are time consuming they require some special knowledge in terms of confined space entry from the people doing the work and they they while they're a good information source they're also limited you may a visual inspection either the inside or the outside of the blade can't see everything and there's i think uh there's limitations to what we can know about the extent of damage due to lightning events
1: and matt how critical is that as you've gone from fiberglass blades to carbon fiber yeah uh, good question
3: spar caps good question i think that carbon fiber in general is less tolerant of flaws than fiberglass and if a flaw is initiated uh, a flaw is present because of damage due to lightning, that can be more critical. On the other side, carbon fiber is more challenging to repair. There's, I think, a an importance in understanding what the damage extent is in carbon fiber blades, perhaps a greater importance than with, with fiberglass blades.
1: And, and the, I think you raised a good point there. Repairing damage on the outside of the blade can be relatively easy, but if you have spar cap, spar web damage, carbon fiber damage internally, that's, is that even possible
3: to repair? It is, yep. It is possible. It's costly. The blade may need to be removed from the turbine, repaired on the ground, reinstalled, uh, rather than say an up tower repair. That's one of the wow. challenges, one of the general challenges of blades is that they are difficult to access. That, okay. that challenge does not go away with lightning-related damage. And,
1: and internal damage, how do you even know to, especially when you get to these larger blades that are a lot of carbon fiber on the spars, how do you know to even check internally? What is there any triggers that happen that say we need to go inside and look?
3: It's a good question. Typically, internal inspections are time-based. They're done on uh, every several years. I do think that in the in some instances, if there is known damage modes, then then you might that might trigger internal oh, okay. inspections, right? Oh, yeah. If there is some external indication that might suggest that further internal looks are advised, then yeah, you'd, you'd want to do that. So,
1: so you the, at that point, you would provide an invaluable service just because you have the history of different of a lot of different <laughs> blades, and so you would know that we have seen this sort of issue on other blades. So we need to go look here. And that sure. history is really invaluable, isn't it?
3: Sure. Yeah. There's a lot of experience. You know, Alex and I get exposed to a lot of different turbine platforms. We see damage across different projects around the world. And that helps inform our perspectives on whether what advice we, we provide to clients. Do we think this is severe or not? There's a lot of judgment involved there. So when we go off and
1: we qualify a new blade design, we do lightning tests in per the IEC 61400-24. And there's different lightning protection levels there. But essentially, we're going to put 200,000 amps and 10 megajoules into that blade, and we're going to see how its response is. Now, one of the things that I think gets overlooked a little bit is the post-test inspection structural of the blade. From the electrical engineer's perspective, we look at it like, yeah, all right, the, the the energy went in, the energy went out. And from what we can tell, electrical speak, it looks like the blade is fine. How important is that, one, that the post-test inspection of the blade structural inspection is done to see if there are those, those sort of fatigue points that we just created in the blade? And then how does that data then translate over to Performance in the field. So if I know a blade has quote unquote passed the IEC test, does that
3: translate into success in the field or is it still unknown? Yeah, let me hit a couple of key points there. Great questions. I think that, first of all, typically full scale blades or the full blade is not tested in the lightning lab. What will happen for the, the high voltage leader attachment test, which is checks the lightning will be directed to a receptor rather than somewhere else in the blade, that's done with the outer portion, just the tip of the blade, say, I don't know, 10 meters or five meters of the tip portion of the blade. And then the, the some of the other tests are, are done, again, with just pieces of the blade, the down conductor or various connections. And it's very rare uh, that a full blade would be brought into a lightning lab and tested. So I think that it's not necessarily even possible to do a post-test <laughs> inspection if you haven't you know, tested that full blade. Yes, so very, uh, I think there's, there's a lot of room there for improving how we do lightning tests. But really the laboratory of the real world is where we get our test data. It's when you get the turbines out there, they're operating, and we see what happens.
0: Speaking of which, do you see any new challenges now that we're getting more floating offshore wind farms and larger ones offshore? Is there a significantly different lightning environment out there way out in the ocean compared to here? I mean, we talk about... We did a show about floating wind turbine tech, you know, a couple episodes ago, and there's a lot of engineering that goes into it, but we'll see if those uh, structures, you know, hold up in 10 years in the high seas. There's still just a lot of, like you said, the real world lab, but do you see any challenges with offshore versus onshore?
2: Yeah, I think offshore has its own unique challenges. The lightning environment is different than onshore, and it's a lot harder to get data. Um, offshore, the lightning location systems are mostly capturing lightning that's occurring onshore. So to start with, we just don't have that much information going into the building of a new project. And then Matt talked about challenges with blade repairs onshore, like lowering a blade to the ground to do repair. Like offshore, your costs just shoot way up to repair these things. So. It's that much more important that the lightning protection system works. It's that much more important to do measurements on turbines to know when you need to go out and and identify damage. And then decisions around when and how to repair are going to be a lot more complex because you need to take into consideration more weather conditions, access limitations, and of course, higher costs. Yeah, it's a big challenge that we're grappling with still as an industry.
1: So as we do get more and more offshore wind turbines and the floating wind turbines and everything gets bigger and bigger, how important then is it to really instrument the turbines? Is it just exponentially more important to to do it just, just because we don't have the lightning detection network really accurately out there? I
2: think so. Yeah, we we're hammering on that point, but as the turbines get bigger, they get more valuable per turbine. And so putting one sensor on it is gonna start to make a lot more sense, especially as you're talking about these 10 megawatt turbines and and bigger. It's the cost per megawatt than just as small for for a sensor like that. And it's just gonna start making a lot of sense. And the value is across multiple aspects from deciding when to inspect, understanding the lightning itself, understanding how many times a, a turbine or blade got struck, I, keeping track of that lifetime impact of, of lightning on the blades, just can't emphasize enough how important that's already is and will continue to become more so.
0: All right, so you both penned an article for ran on windpowerengineering.com earlier this summer called lightning wind turbines and force majeure, a risky mix. So we've been talking a lot about maintenance and about sensors and about just getting data and, but let's talk about what this means for the wind farm owner, because obviously at the end of the day, they need to make good financial forecasts and they want to make sure that damage is covered under warranty. I'll toss this up to you first, Matt. If I'm buying a wind turbine, is there a specific language that I should include in the contract? And I know force majeure has been one of those sort of contentious contract language pieces, but what should I be trying to get in my contract to help protect my investment?
3: Great question. Yeah, the force majeure has its place. if a tornado hits your turbine, that's a force majeure event, right? Mm -hmm. In the case of lightning though, Turbines have a lightning protection system that is engineered to protect against a certain level of lightning, which is governed by the IEC 24 standard. Now, I think that it is reasonable that if lightning is within the capability of the lightning protection system, that lightning should not necessarily cause catastrophic damage to a turbine that would result in, say, an insurable event. I think that. In the contracting phase when commercial contracts are being developed either it's like a turbine supply agreement or a say a service and maintenance agreement those types of commercial documents between a purchaser and a, a turbine vendor in those documents i from my perspective lightning should not automatically be considered a force majeure event and it, you know certainly some lightning it should right lightning that's it's far outside the capability of the lightning protection system. Again, I think that's reasonable. But I think that in the case of of lightning, there ought to be a, a closer examination of of whether or not the lightning protection system should or should not have safely uh, protected the turbine from the event. So that's typically commercial agreements consider lightning force majeure. And, and the industry has just been proceeding that way. And I do think that that is probably time to shift the industry away from that, and and that could have some beneficial effects that could have the effect of us pushing towards better understanding of lightning and its interaction with wind turbines, driving better designs for lightning protection systems, okay, and improvements in the standard, those kinds of things. So uh, I think there's a lot there that, that could be driven by the content of commercial agreements
1: how much influence do the landowners or the adjacent communities play into that? Because there seems to be uh, a number of organized efforts, not huge, but there are local organized efforts that are concerned about blades breaking and lightning strikes and that sort of thing. The Sort of the overall pressure on the industry to provide really stable lightning protection systems seems to be growing and growing, as particularly in the United States as the wind turbines get larger distribution and i think the the money is going to be the the key point here and insurance companies obviously have a big say and in, into what manufacturers do have you seen that sort of change of the I, I think i've seen better lightning protection systems than i saw 10 years ago
3: in general lightning protection systems do a pretty good job i think that you know, blade failures are very rare events and Blade failures due to lightning are even rarer. On top of that, I think that the risk associated with these events is low. I, I, again, I, I do think that there is there's different ways where we could push on this force majeure clause and and having that sort of changed. I think having underwriters, you know, in, insurance policy writers influence the content of those contracts potentially other stakeholders like landowners, although I, th- I think that the, I don't know much about the interactions between landowners and, and developers, but it seems to me like yeah, that's possible that they could influence, influence those discussions.
1: Yeah, so it, I'll give you the comparison in the aviation world. So first powered flights, 1903, we had lightning strikes of airplanes, Prior to World War Two, pretty commonly and in terms of the the, na- the nation, or we started putting in essentially laws didn't happen until late or mid 1960s. After we had a series of commercial accidents that were just visible to the public, there were large press events and it push the federal government to do something are we in that sort of phase right now where we don't have federal requirements to provide lightning protection systems to some level does it even need to go that far or, or is the industry going to be able to self-regulate
3: good question i th- you know turbine manufacturers themselves have an incentive to have their turbines run great and not be damaged by lightning so there i think there's always going to be good efforts within turbine manufacturers to have high performing lightning protection systems. I suppose that the, as the industry evolves that, and as you say, turbines become more widespread, there could be an increasing role in either at any level of government in, in the regulation of, of turbines, turbine design, that type of thing. But I think we're a long way from the extent to which there's interaction between the government and and the aviation industry.
0: So I want to jump back to the, the contract language. So on your article, uh, you mentioned that there are a couple factors that they should consider when drafting, uh, their contract. So number one, lightning damage, not being a force majeure event by default. Number two, a clear definition of function impairing damage. Number three, consideration of uncertainties with possibility or possible adjustments of assigned responsibility between the manufacturer of the turbine and the owner. And then lastly, a path for dispute resolution, such as like a mediator. So can you, can you talk through those a little bit more and, and elaborate a little bit for me?
2: Yeah. I think the, once you take out the force majeure language, or once you say not all lightning is force majeure, mm-hmm. some lightning is force majeure, you introduce um, some new challenges and the new challenges is. How do you know how severe the lightning was? How do you know what actually caused the damage? If you have it, all lightning is force majeure, it's easier, but it might not be very fair. The lightning protection system is designed and certified to protect the turbine to a certain level of lightning. And so if it's the turbine's getting damaged at, at less severe lightning, then that should be the, the OEM service provider's responsibility. But yeah, so as you read from the article, the complications do arise of figuring out was the lightning within or outside of the design limits. and So that's a typical definition for other types of force measure. If you have wind conditions that are outside the design limits, that might be considered force measure lightning it should be the same if it's outside the design limits of the lightning protection system, that should be considered force measure. But then we get back to our earlier conversation, we don't have good measurements of lightning of all of the parameters. Sometimes the lightning location system doesn't even measure the damaging strike. So how do we know if it was within or outside of those design limits? And the answer is we either we either use on turbine measurement systems, we've been talking about, we use probabilities. And that's an acceptable way to go. We do know the typical frequency distributions of the design parameters. And so we can make educated guesses about it and we can put statistics around those educated guesses. What we need to have in the contract language is clear definitions around how those probabilities are used. So if we're able to calculate the likelihood that the design limits were exceeded, the contract needs to say, at what point does the responsibility go to the owner versus mm-hmm. the operator or the source mm-hmm. provider? Or is there a split contribution? Things like that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Because it, like you said, it seems like, hey, all lightning is force majeure. Therefore, it, it, it just if they take that clause away, it's going to force everybody to make a lot of really strong standards to say, okay, this is where we cover it. This is where you cover it. And uh, yeah, it seems like there's like a lot of insurance on just legal paperwork. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And the, what we wouldn't want to see is the force measure clause removed and not, and what goes in its place, not being cleared Mm -hmm. precise enough.
0: So do you have an idea about where that limit would be? Is it a certain amount of Coulombs or? kiloamps or what Alan I'll throw this to you what do you think like a lightning strike looks like that's well beyond the limits of a LPS
1: well the LPSs are designed today to take 200,000 amps a little over
3: and 10 million action or mega joules per ohm I, I think it's a really good question I think that if any one of the design parameters are exceeded an argument could be made that that lightning event that exceeded that design parameter was outside of the capability of the LPS because the LPS is only designed to be able to handle so much. Yeah, just again, like Alex was saying with wind conditions, right? Let's say the turbine saw an extreme wind event and uh, it was the turbulence that was too high rather than the the winds, the mean wind speed that was too high. I think you could still make the argument that wind event exceeded the, the capability of, of the turbine. At least in the 2010 version of the Dash 24 standard, there is really no restriction on how many times the lightning protection system can get hit. There's certainly there's discussion around erosion of receptors, which makes sense, right? Like you want to be able to replace components that have eroded or melted because of numerous strikes. So, you know, that lightning protection really system really needs to be able to handle uh, what we collectively as an industry decide are the limits of its capability for the life of the turbine.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I was just trying to relate that strikes that are above two hundred thousand amps are relatively rare, and ten megajoules per ohms are again relatively rare. Tend to be positive strikes. Uh, so there, I think the thing that we're seeing, maybe just maybe it's a, a U.S. based thing, that w- we aren't seeing such such super strikes so much as so that repetitive nature. And you're right, the IEC spec does talk about repeat strikes and replacing components that are going to be likely erosion, like the receptors are going to get eroded. That all makes sense to me. I think what we're concerned about is that accumulative effect, because now we are triggering a lot of these strikes and we don't really have a really hard number on how many strikes are likely to take. And I think there can be an argument made from the manufacturer's perspective that we designed our our system to take, say, it's 100 strikes. And for whatever reason, where we put this wind turbine, it's taken 500. So I think that because it's not described very well in the IEC document, I think that's an area of concern. And I, I don't think there's an answer for it, but I think that's where probably a lot of the discussion will end up. It's just on, on the repeatability of the number of strikes.
2: I think that's a good area of maybe research out there. I don't know that the industry has grappled with it yet, but I agree that there's some indication that the number of strikes has an impact on how well the the blade's able to handle additional strikes. And maybe at some point that will be a part of the standard.
1: Yeah, we still only have a lot of data. And you're probably at the forefront of all of this data, Alex, is that you have a sense of how many strikes these turbines are taking and, and as an industry i know we're going to make that cycle around again where we're going to be coming back to the IEC spec and opening it up again and do we start putting in requirements that say all right we need to do repeat strike testing we need to look at sort of the likelihood of taking 50 100 strikes how do we even evaluate it in the laboratory because that's the thing we don't do today uh, so there's a lot of complexities, but as you were talking about earlier, one, the force majority seems to be a big driver here, but two, just the lack of data is really an area we should focus on today, if we can.
0: So as we start to wrap up here, let's talk about the future a little bit. So are there any trends or any new recommendations or technologies you'd like to see becoming standard or just the industry going towards in general? Alex, I'll throw this to you first. What do you think about the future of of lightning protection in the the wind industry?
2: I think the the main thing we need to do as an industry is understand the interaction of lightning with wind turbines better. There isn't enough um, information out there about the actual field experience. So more measurements, m- more data, more analysis, and then being just being open to the fact that it's. It's an evolving science, and the lightning protection systems are evolving. As the turbines are getting bigger, they're getting hit more, and possibly with higher-intensity lightning. Losing blades is a, is a very high-profile event for the industry, and it threatens our, our credibility, not to mention it's very expensive. Across the board, I think it's a really important issue. It should be getting a lot of attention and, and yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes in the
3: next few years. I would add to that, again, as we've said, that I think that there's a lot of room on the contracts side for evolution of the language in the contracts to handle lightning as an event. And again, as we've talked about, to not consider automatically all lightning as force majeure. And I think when you couple, as Alex was saying, the sort of increasing size of turbines, increasing tip heights the sort of dollar per megawatt value here. Uh, I think that the contracts should keep up with that and they should, the contracts, uh, the content of the contracts should match uh, the risk levels that we see here. So again, I, th- I think there's room for evolution in the standards and uh, certainly in the technology that we use for measuring lightning and for protecting ourselves against lightning.
0: All right, Alex and Matt, thank you guys so much for being here. This is a, a really detailed, awesome talk. I know Alan loves geeking out on Lightning whenever he gets a chance. So <laughs> yes. this is a real tweet for him, especially, but all of us here. So Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. really appreciate it.
2: Thank, thank you both. Yeah, it was a real pleasure uh, talking with both of you.
0: And Matt, thank you again. I uh, appreciate your expertise. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation
3: and, and thank you very much for inviting us and having us on.
0: All right, well, we're going to wrap up today's episode of Uptime. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a regular here, thank you for your continued support. Please subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from each show. For Alan and all of us at WeatherGuard, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Is downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end? It's no secret. Lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime. This damage is preventable with our easy to install strike tape, lightning protection system for wind turbine blades. Our incredible engineering build quality materials and edge sealants withstand up to five times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions. And we've got the research to prove it. If you're tired of constant downtime, we can help. Reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call. We'll get your uptime back in no time.